Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a fortnightly celebration of books. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which I'm producing this episode, the Boonarong people of the Kulin Nation, and I'd also like to acknowledge any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians listening to this audio. I pay my respects to Elders past and present. In today's episode, Sarah Sintilli's and Kate Mildenhall discuss Stranger Care, a devastating memoir about motherhood from the award-winning author of Draw Your Weapons. Before we start, a quick reminder. As this is a recording of an event held live via the internet, there has been some impact on the sound quality of the episode. And now, interviewing Sarah Sintilli's, here's Kate Mildenhall. I first saw Sarah Santellis on stage at Bendigo Writers' Festival and she was talking about her extraordinary book, Draw Your Weapons. I had no idea who she was. Draw Your Weapons had won the 2018 Penn Award for Creative Nonfiction and honestly, I was a little bit spellbound by her. And then fast forward a year and someone who became our mutual friend, Charlotte Wood, interviewed Sarah for her podcast and I knew that I must get into this woman's orbit. Sarah Sentelis is a writer, a teacher, a critical theorist, a scholar of religion, an activist, and an author of many books. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, the New Yorker, Oprah Magazine, the LA Review of Books, just to name a few. Sentelis earned a bachelor's degree at Yale and a master's and doctoral degrees at Harvard. She's the co-founder of the Alliance of Idaho, which works to protect the human rights of immigrants. She teaches writing workshops, including the actual life-changing word cave and I know that there are people already in this room who are word cave devotees I think I've been three times already and I'm booked in for a fourth Sarah also works one-on-one with clients to help support their art writing and creativity and her most recent book is Stranger Care I apologize mine does not look Instagram worthy right now because I've put so many marks in here it's called Stranger Care a memoir of loving what isn't ours Sarah, it is such a pleasure to welcome you here tonight. Oh, Kate, the pleasure is all mine. Thank you so much for spending your time with me. I would say tonight, but it's actually the morning. Here it's four in the morning. And thank you, Lucy, for having me. And Kate, you're such a light. Um, you transform all the spaces you're in um, on the page and off. So I'm very grateful to be talking with you. Thank you, dear Sarah. It is 4 a.m. in the morning. I know that you've already been drinking espresso. Um, now, I have been in that gorgeous space online virtually before and I know that there are some fairly magical things out your window if we could see if you could see what's outside your window at the moment can you tell us a little bit about where you live and what's out there yes I live um, on Shoshone Bannock land unceded land and um, I too honor leaders emerging and um, from the past who taught me how to tend this land and taught us what love for land looks like and continue to teach with their lives and activism. But I live in a mountain valley. So outside my window, you would see a mountain called Carbonate, part of a mountain range. You can't see them, but uh, to the east of me are the Pioneer Mountains, which are tall and gorgeous. The Big Wood River runs through the valley and there's canyons all up and down the valley. So my space is arranged by canyon. That's how we identify where we are. I feel like if I manifest it hard enough, then one day I'm going to come and see that. that I know you're with you. I know you will. When I when I first finished Stranger Care, I emailed you, Sarah, and I said, "I don't have words yet. I'm reeling. I'm heartstruck. I'm broken. I can feel the small but definite phantom weight of cocoa against my chest. My throat burned with yours when you screamed in the car, and I can feel the aftermath." of reading this book like a bruise and I've watched the responses who have felt this book Stranger Care like a very physical kind of a a primal reaction to this book but you also hold us so gently through the story and I want to just get you to begin at the beginning you say I'd struggled for most of my life to name my desire to separate it from other people's expectations and when I did figure out what I wanted it was hard for me to say it I didn't trust my knowing, especially when someone else wanted something different. Can you tell us what it is that you wanted and what your husband, Eric, wanted? 
Um, I wanted to be a mother. I wanted to parent a child. It was my deepest, deepest longing. Um, and I'd always wanted to be a mother, but I, I hadn't admitted it to myself because I'd absorbed the messages in the cultural ether that kind of frame motherhood as as both the most holy work a woman can do or a person can do and as trap. And I was thinking of it more as trap. I thought becoming a mother would ruin my writing, ruin my life, maybe ruin my marriage. And so um, I was married to somebody who at first was ambivalent about having kids. He thought, oh, I'm fine, just the two of us. So that allowed me to kind of stew in my own ambivalence and my own doubts. By the time I admitted to myself that this was indeed my deepest longing, I discovered I was married to someone who is an environmentalist and didn't want to bring a new human onto the planet. He thought there were too many and there were already hundreds of thousands of children that needed homes. Why wouldn't we just be home to a child that already needed one? I had this question running through my head. Do I want to have a baby? Do I want to have a baby? Do I want to have a baby? At some point it shifted to, do I want to be a parent? Which was really a loosening. Like so many more things became possible once I realized I didn't need to be pregnant. I just wanted to welcome a child into our home. Eric wants to live in a place, in a world where we tend the earth. And I want to live in a world where we tend strangers and we tend one another. So foster care became our common ground where we could do both the things that matter to us and welcome a child into our lives. I'm really conscious that your experience of the foster care system is is not only US specific, but also very state specific. And I am no expert on the system here in Australia, although I, I do know that there's many things that are the same, including the fact that we always need more foster parents and some of the the ways in which children are, are removed from their families here as well. Can you give us just a little bit, because the start of the book is about you doing this training to become a foster parent. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the things that stood out to you during that process or the things that were really difficult? Because <laughs> they're difficult as a reader, reading them. It was bizarre. You know, I got to experience the foster care system in several states because Eric and I were living in Portland, Oregon, when we decided first to become foster parents. So we started their training. Um, And then when we moved to Idaho, none of that counted. So we had to start over again, which was great because uh, in Oregon, these two social workers came to our house over and over and over and interrogated us. They they would literally separate us um, in our house talk to Eric in one place and me in another place and ask these super invasive questions about our sexual histories, our relationship to alcohol, um, how we would discipline our kids, why I'm in so much therapy, you know, just did my parents hit me, questions, questions, questions. And their visits always brought out this super weird good girl performer herself. Like I thought these two women were charged with deciding whether or not I could be a parent. Um, and so that made me act like a complete freak. Like I was so, <laughs> I was weird and scared and kind of sweaty. And Eric, who didn't really care if we became parents or not at that time, he was just charming and delightful and they loved him. Um, so when we got to try again in Idaho, I thought, okay, this time I'm going to do it right. I'm not going to talk about therapy. I'm not going to talk about tequila. I'm not going to offer cookies too many times, which is what I'd been doing. And Idaho system was was wildly different. You know, while in Oregon, we'd had a series of classes called Pride. And sometimes we learned amazing things. Like there were these phrases that stayed in my head about, for example, the importance of loving biological parents. One of the social workers said, if, if you can't love the parent, then the child will think you can't love them either, which is a big theme throughout stranger care. Two absurd things, like the way that they tackled racism was to just have this idea that you would serve your child food that might be familiar to them. So there's so much racism in the foster care system in the United States, and the training that we were offered did nothing to remedy that. You and Eric came to a a kind of decision, I suppose, about when phone calls would come in. And there's one really extraordinary section of the book. All the book is extraordinary. And you end up saying no to a child, a child who is from your community. And you're distraught and you write, for Eric, the phone call and our response to it confirmed his worldview. The universe is indifferent. Humanity is a cancer. We failed to respond to those in need, be they beasts or birds or trees or refugees, or children. And I know, and readers know when they get to the end of the book, you do not share that worldview, Sarah. But I wanted to know if there were points at which you did, that it was so difficult that that became too much for you. 
Uh, that moment where we said no to a little boy, it makes me actually cry now thinking about it. Uh, you know, I had I built my intellectual career on this idea of how do we respond to the suffering of others? And here, when you're when you become a foster parent, you literally get a phone call asking you to respond to the suffering of others. Um, it's this amazing opportunity to do something concrete that would make a difference in someone's life. And it's also this confrontation with your own capacity uh, and what you're capable of. And this particular boy had suffered from terrible, terrible neglect. And um, at first they thought he was like uh, one years old and it turned out he was three years old and he couldn't walk and he couldn't talk. And he had been just terribly, terribly treated. And Eric and I knew we didn't have the resources we need to take proper care of him. And um, the beauty of that story is that he did get find exactly the right person. He ended up, um, this isn't in the book, but he ended up living with his physical therapist who he knew and loved and who, who had all the skills to take care of him. So another lesson of it is that you are not the only one and you are not the best always to answer every situation that sometimes um, by saying, no, you make room for a, something better for somebody else. It's one of those um, examples of how boundary setting can be generous. But at that time, it didn't feel generous to me. It felt like, who am I? What kind of person am I? I felt this complete shattering shame uh, that there was a boy who needed me. And we said no to that. Um, it really messed with me for, for months. I do not share Eric's worldview that the universe is indifferent. I think bureaucracy is indifferent. I think bureaucracy is violent. I think um, this system that that was so hard for me to navigate as a white woman with privilege. Just imagine what it's like to be a child, that child, that child had already been failed by the system several times. So for me, it's Eric and I both think the world is, is made. We both think human beings um, have a lot to do with the situations that we find ourselves in, whether that's climate change or racism or sexism or the foster care system. We both think we have everything we need as a species to, to repair the world. Eric thinks we never will, and I think we might. <laughs> and this is like the rift in our marriage that we have learned to navigate. And I think both our worldviews bring strengths. You know, uh, I saw this cartoon once about three half glasses of water on the on a counter, and one of the glasses says, "I'm half full." The middle one says, "I'm half empty," and the third one says, "I think it's piss." <laughs> and I joke <laughs> that. I'm the first one and Eric is the third one and he thinks it's piss. I think it's half full. And this, this makes our relationship work. It actually works for us. And it's extraordinary as the book progresses and we, and we read through your story, finding what brings you so, so close, that thing in the middle, which in many ways is Coco. And I want to just make sure that our listeners, the people joining us tonight know that Coco is the name that Sarah uses for this incredible child and that we will use, but it, it's not Coco's real name and nor is Evelyn Coco's biological mother. Sarah, can you tell us how Coco came into your life? Yes. So when you become a foster parent, like I said earlier, you get a phone call and someone on the other end will ask you if it, tell you that there's a child in need and will you be the foster parent? I was actually working with a writing client and I had on my headset and Eric came to the door and um, knocked on my office door. And I get really annoyed when he knocks on my office door when I'm, when I'm working or, or writing or talking to someone. But he had this look on his face. I knew something was going on. So I texted him and he just texted back, baby. Um, and I had ignored already our landline had rung. My cell phone had rung. I did. I ignored all of these phone calls. So I called the social worker back. It was 11 in the morning. And she said there was a three-day-old baby girl at a hospital in Twin Falls. And, and could we come get her? And we did. And at 11 a.m., we didn't have a baby. And at 2 p.m., we did. Twin Falls is two hours away. And I will never forget walking into that hospital room, seeing her tiny, tiny body. She was less than five pounds. Um, a nurse was holding her. And the love that we had for her, both Eric and I immediately felt this deep, fierce, protective love. What was that first week like? What were your days and nights like? Like, what were you doing? You'd gone from not having a baby to having a baby and your entire life was kind of entirely made anew. 
the first week was me going, is she breathing? Is she breathing? Is she breathing? Is she breathing? I think that's what we did the whole time. We were too freaking out to let her sleep in the bassinet. So we were, we would just like kind of hover over her staring, trying to like listen to see if her breath was coming. Um, it was the, the most profound joy right away. It was so beautiful. I felt that we had been handed this tiny being to tend. And I'd often heard people talking about how their hearts expanded when they had a baby or they never have known love like they did when they became a mother. And I always frankly felt very annoyed by that. I felt like it frames people who aren't parents as deficient. I felt like people were making assumptions about what my heart was capable of or not capable of, or the kinds of love I'd felt or not felt. But I felt that happen for Coco. Um, But I think it's a misunderstanding to think it's because I became a parent or sometimes people think it's because you have a biological child and then part of your DNA is out in the world. And somehow that makes you capable of more love. For me, it was this sense of the universe saying, here, tend this being. And that showed me what all humans are capable of. If I can tend this stranger, tiny little infant, then I can tend a mountain, I can tend a river, I can tend a refugee, I can tend, you know, my enemy, that it showed us actually that we are capable of seeing family everywhere and that love itself is a practice and that we can rise to it. One of the extraordinary acts that you do as the writer and you give us as the reader, I think, too, is that you didn't see everything at the start. You did have a blind spot, which is the way in which you anticipated that Coco could be yours and that that she would stay with you. And watching as a reader, uh, you move towards it because we are so intimate with you as the writer, watching you move towards this moment where you suddenly come to terms with the fact that there is also Evelyn and you need to cope with that. Can you tell us about the first court meeting that when you met Evelyn? Yeah, it's one of those ways where you realize the foster care system hasn't really thought through the intimacy of what it's asking people to do. So, you know, I called the book Stranger Care because that's what Eric and I were called in the foster care system. We were non-relative care providers or stranger care, which is a really alienating term, but it also captures the question at the heart of the book, which is, will we tend to each other? You know, will we take care of the most vulnerable among us? Um, And one of the ways that the foster care system reveals this idea that it's not thinking about the fact that a child has been taken from one mother and given to another, and then they're going to meet each other. (laughs) How how are we going to support these meetings? You know, how are we going to help facilitate connection and community? And how are we going to make room for all the weird feelings that are going to come up? Instead, Evelyn and I meet each other at the courtroom. There's a series of court dates when a child is taken into care in the United States and um, they're scheduled out. And this was two weeks after Evelyn had given birth to Coco. She hadn't seen her daughter for two weeks. She Here's this woman who has all the signs of pregnancy. Her breasts are, are still making milk that she's not allowed to give to her child. And we meet each other outside a courtroom and then we go through security. I have Coco in a, a little stroller and she's wrapped up and we get to the other side of security and she says, can I hold her? And I hand this five pound baby to her mother and Evelyn holds her baby in a hallway of a courtroom. That's how we met each other. She just sits and holds her baby and whispers, I love you, I love you, I love you too much, I love you too much. And that was my first sign, this is not working the way that I thought, this situation is not what I thought it was. How am I gonna live through this? How am I gonna behave? Um, What is required of me here? It's an extraordinary moment in the book and the way that your relationship with Evelyn changes over, over the book is, I suppose, one of the threads that compels us through as much as it is I'm looking looking for Coco. I listened today to your wonderful conversation with Charlotte Wood um, and I've given this to Lucy in advance so that she can give it to our audience as well to listen back to this conversation. And you talk about in that podcast the concept of troubling certainty which I think is so much what, what you work with and what you write about. And you mentioned your teacher, the theologian Gordon Kaufman, and what he taught you about the most ethical thing a human person can say. Can you, can you tell us about that, Sarah? 
Yeah. So um, I am a theologian. That's my background. I studied theology, which is just the words humans use to talk about God. And my main mentor was a theologian named Gordon Kaufman, who's since died, um, who was a conscientious objector during World War II and a Mennonite and a super ethical, beautiful human being. And he, one of the things I love about him is that he always said the question about whether God exists is irrelevant um, because the word God is out there doing all kinds of work. And it's our job to come up with better alternatives and to hold that language accountable for its effects. So it was my first kind of infusion of holiness into language, this idea that God is a word out in the world doing work and that our job is to write better words about God to do better work in the world. Um, But the other profound thing he said is that the most ethical thing a human can say is I might be wrong, which doesn't mean you can't stake your lives on your beliefs, but it does mean you can't kill someone else over them. And so as as a person, as a human, And as a writer, I've always been interested in what does that, what does it look like to live that way? Always holding this possibility that you aren't seeing everything, that you're misseeing, that you're misspeaking, that um, the categories we have for other people aren't big enough for them, that, that, you know, there's transcendence to every single being. And um, it's our job to make room for the parts that don't fit for what's been left out. Um, And so that's actually a formal question for me as a writer. How do you do that on the page? How do you point to the limits of your own storytelling and the limits of your own language? How do you be generous to your characters and the people you're writing about to remember that there's more to them than you'll ever know? How do you show that on the page? To me, that's a really interesting formal writing question. So before you got to showing Evelyn on the page, how did you come to, and I know you talked to your therapist about this as well, how did you come to working out how you were going to frame her or cope with her in your life, the presence of her and, and who she was to you? I have a really good therapist who basically slaps me around. <laughs> you know, she doesn't wait for me to come to it on my own. She says, we don't have time for that. You know, all we have time for is right human relations. We don't have time for you to figure it out. Let's just, let me just point you in a different direction. And so we had this tiny Coco that we'd welcomed home. And on some level, I knew she wasn't ours, but I did know we belonged to each other and that um, I was charged with making sure she was safe. Um, And then she had this birth mother who was trying to get her life together so she could get her daughter back. And I don't say a lot about what Evelyn did to have Coco taken into care or really her history because I try to give Coco a fresh start on the page and and because that information's private. But um, she had all these things she had to do in order to get her daughter back. And I was wildly hoping she would be unable to do them. I wanted her to fail even wanted her to die. I wanted her to disappear. Um, And confronting that in myself, you know, here I am, I've thought of myself as a theologian, as ethical, as um, anti-war, and I'm wishing harm on another human being because I want to keep her child. This is deeply, deeply uncomfortable and deeply primal. There was nothing I, there was nothing I could do about it. That's how I felt. One day, uh, Eric came into the kitchen and I was kind of leaned over our butcher block table, which for for me is like my physical manifestation of grief is like I can't stand, you know, I just have to feel my cheek held by this wood of our butcher block. And Eric was asking me what was wrong. And I felt like I was not going to be able to survive the loss of Coco if I was asked to give her back to Evelyn. Um, And I ended up talking to my therapist and she said, um, basically, you have to turn your heart 180 degrees around that you have to stop hoping something bad will happen to this person. And you have to start cheering for her and championing her. Um, And she said two things that really stayed with me. She said 100 things that stayed with me. But two that really challenged me was that my my life is not worth more than Evelyn's life. Um, And that here's this person showing the desire to turn her life around to be able to get her daughter back. And I had to support that. And then she said, someday you'll want to be able to look Coco in the eyes and say, um, your mother was beautiful. She loved you. She did everything in her power to get wealth for you. And we were supporting her to do that. And you'll have to be telling the truth. Um, And so that idea of someday looking in, in Coco's eyes and saying, I wanted your mother to die. You know, I wanted your mother to fail. I wanted you never to see your mother again. I didn't want to be that person. So how was I going to turn 
my affect around? How was I going to turn my actions around so that I could be loving to this vulnerable and very broken human? Um, and so it became a practice for me, a meditative practice, a physical practice. Um, how, how do I love her? How do I support her? Um, and eventually it became clear to me that to love Coco was to love Evelyn. And it's the most profound, terrible, shattering and healing um, transformation I've, I've ever experienced. The way that you write about that transformation and the gift that you give us of readers being drawn straight into it, I can't imagine how you did that. The act of actually protecting yourself as a writer to get that on the page, the act of getting those words down on a daily basis, of reading back over them, of of grappling with them, moving from being something intimate to going out in the world. Can you talk a little bit about, as, as a memoirist, I suppose, how you considered that in your work? Well, writing, writing felt like the only agency that I had. Part of, I don't know if people watching have had these experiences of extreme helplessness where um, I think illness brings that or, or any kind of loss where there's literally nothing you can do to make, make it turn out differently, like nothing. <laughs> and I'd gone through my whole life always being able to fix things. You know, that's part of what privilege is, is, is like fixing it. throwing money at it, talking to somebody else, using your social capital. And there was nothing that I could do here, but I could write. There was a way that just arranging words on the page felt like agency. Um, I knew I was recording what was happening. Um, Sometimes I used words as a shield. You know, there's all this language in the foster care system that's devastating, like the phrase broken baby, for example. Um, When I would hear things like that, that I just couldn't take in, I just took notes. I have notebooks and notebooks of of this strange language and these details of our training. And then when I would be most shattered, Eric would look at me and just say, go, go right. And I, I didn't want to, you know, but I would sit down and just like spew out everything that was happening. And then I had that raw material um, to work with. So once I started arranging that raw material, it felt like, it felt like agency, even when the sentence I was writing is she's gone or she's leaving or she's not here anymore. Also writing and writing and talking about the book brings Coco close to me. It feel, I feel her close. You know, one of the things I think that's so powerful about writing is that you, you can bring, bring close what's gone, what's missing, what's no longer with you. But then formally, I wanted to think about it. Well, I don't want to do, I don't want to shatter my reader completely. <laughs> you know, I want to offer something back. Um, so what I offered back is, is the natural world and the ways that the natural world shows us what love looks like, what stranger care looks like, what tending one another looks like. Um, and I also offered back white space where the reader could take a breath where the reader is invited to animate the story on her own. So I wanted it to be really a love a love letter to Coco. That's how I imagined it. I wanted to help write a world where we might treat one another as family, as kin, um, so that wherever she landed, she might be well-tended. Um, and so that was my intention. And I think having an intention like that kind of lifts the story beyond just the grief part of it. I want to ask you to read us something, but before I do, I will say that you have crafted a book that is a a kind of compelling page turner, but of course there has to be the spoiler that we give on people who haven't read it yet, which is what you've already said, that it, it of course comes to pass that Coco is taken from you and she's no longer with you. And this section that I'm going to ask you to read, when I read, I just wept while I was reading it and it was partly because physically I was I was thinking about my own kids and kids that I know at the 10 months old and I felt like that it was a prayer or a, a meditation of sorts and the specificity of the words that you used was something that you could um, hold on to. So can you please give us the um, great honour of reading to us the section flooding please Sarah? Yes thank you for asking me Kate. Flooding When I thought about Coco being taken away from us, which in the language of the foster care system sounds not like taken away, but like returned or reunified or sent home, I couldn't stand. I had to lean on the kitchen counter, lie on the bedroom floor, put my hands on my knees. Flooded, my therapist called it. She taught me breathing exercises, taught me how to stay in the present, Name five red objects in the room, she said, which sounded like the dumbest thing anyone had ever told me to do, but I tried it anyway, and it worked. Red block, red paint, red tongue, 
red leaf, red heart. There was nothing I could do to change the outcome and there never was. All that was left to do was to love Coco, to be joyful and present, to teach her to trust and connect, to teach her how to sit and stand and chew and swallow and smile. We fed her sweet potatoes, avocados, peas, bananas, rice cereal, oatmeal, broccoli, cauliflower, zucchini, lentils, coconut milk, peanut butter, scrambled egg yolks. We sat with her on the floor, put pillows all around in case she fell, helped her reach for blocks, for rings, for stuffed ducks and elephants and foxes. She made new sounds every day. F, 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 she said. Ba, 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 she said. She gurgled, yelped, giggled, cooed. She reached for the cats, petted their fur. Every morning when we came to get her in her crib, she wiggled and smiled and laughed. Who's the happiest baby, we asked. Who is, who is? I took Coco on a walk almost every day. And though there was still snow on the ground, I could hear the birds who had returned. Vultures circled the blue, looking for what had not survived the winter. Groups of cedar waxwings flew from tree to tree. Red-winged blackbirds called to each other in the tall grasses. Can you hear that? I asked Coco. When there was less human noise on the earth, less talking, less traffic, fewer machines, fewer airplanes, people could hear the other animals we share the planet with. They allowed themselves to be sung to. Wherever you are, there will be birdsong, I said. I pointed to the moon crossing the sky in the middle of the day. Wherever you are, there will be moonlight. Thank you. If we were in readings right now, everyone would be looking at each other and clapping for you and loving that. Thank you for reading to us. I want to ask you a little bit about what you referred to before, the natural world and the way that it is in the book, the trees and the orcas and the ants. I know that when you lead writing classes, you like to use juxtaposition and you like to take two disparate things. I know in your Lit Hub essay, you know, the the mother moose and and your feelings of loss or, you know, enjoy your weapons like the violin maker and Abu Ghraib, like these two really disparate things and you try and make a bridge to bring those two things together. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because you will articulate it so much better than I just did. You said it perfectly. I, I love to use juxtaposition. I like to place things side by side that we're trained to keep separate. Um, I like to kind of animate the things that way so that we might think about the world differently. And the, the person who helped me think about that is the artist, the American artist, Fred Wilson, who did this amazing art installation called Mining the Museum, where um, this museum in Baltimore gave him access to their collection. And he kind of rearranged it to show the deep um, and enduring legacy of racism in the United States. And one of the things that stayed with me was this part that he did called metalwork, where he put together these intricate silver sugar bowls and like vases right next to manacles used um, to trap enslaved people and just called that metalwork with a date, uh, which I'm forgetting now. And I thought, okay, I want my writing to work like that, you know, by putting the manacles next to these rich objects of capitalism um, and knowing that they're made at the same time, he's showing the links between the violence of, of slavery and the accumulation of wealth that couldn't be visible any other way. So it was like, what, what would it look like to write like that? Um, so that's how I try to think about a placement, an argument by placement, by putting something just in close proximity with it, with an object or an idea we're, we're not supposed to think of at the same time. <laughs> so that's really interesting to me. Um, I think things come alive that way. The other thing, um, that I like to do is that every single detail in, in my book, I want it to do double or triple or quadruple work. I don't want anything to be extraneous. So um, when I describe an object, I want it to um, support the theme and the emotion of, of whatever scene is happening. And so that felt really important to me in this book as well, specifically having to do with the natural world. A good friend of mine just read the book and she and I walked together a lot. And <clears throat> she said, I love the way that in the beginning, you're looking to nature for evidence of stranger care, you know, for evidence of, of kinship and, and relationship in ways we aren't usually taught to see it. And at the end, you know, you're looking for love, like um, examples of love in nature. And at the end, it's nature that loves you, that carries you in your grief. And I was like, 
oh yeah, that's good. <laughs> you know, I didn't, I didn't realize I did that, but that's exactly what I was doing. You know, I didn't realize that what was happening, but in the beginning, it's almost like an intellectual exercise. And at the end, the natural world, it becomes survival for me. It's how I endure what I'm asked to walk through. The fragments that you've written and your friends then showing you that kind of chronology of how the natural world shifted for you. I know that your writing process involves piecing together and moving around. And I know this because you taught it to me and then I tried to do it myself and, and it did create something new in, in the work. Can you just tell, because I know there's a lot of writers here tonight, can you just tell us a little bit about piecing the actual whole kind of manuscript together, how you do that? Well, when I wrote Draw Your Weapons, I, I first wrote it as a novel um, and then was told by a friend that it wasn't working. And I kind of shattered it into a thousand pieces and trying to put it back together. And I literally did that. I would write fragments, write fragments, write fragments, and then cut them up and tape it back together on blank paper and then type it back in and then cut it up and tape it. It's like a very physical process. Draw Your Weapons was like cut glass. It was so hard to write. That book was so hard to write. It took me 10 years this book feels like water to me. It was much easier. The material was just as difficult, but much more intimate and much more heartbreaking for me personally. But the writing itself was easy. When I when I write, I write whatever I'm drawn to pay attention to. And I trust that why I'm drawn to that material is going to reveal itself. So for example, most people don't actually know this. I haven't shared this with very many people, but I called this book the moon book on my computer. I always called it the moon book. I thought it was ultimately about the moon, but I did no writing about the moon. <laughs> you know, I tried. I did like one little story about the moon here, one little story about the moon here, but something about it felt essentially lunar. Um, and it wasn't until I wrote the epilogue, which um, there was a huge debate in my at my publisher about whether we would include the epilogue or not. And I write about the moon and the epilogue that I understood why I was drawn to the moon because of stories about how the moon gets created and, and because of this idea of something being far away that that affects everything, that whose pull affects everything. So I try to trust my instincts as a writer that what I'm drawn to is what what matters and that if I write it, it will reveal itself, why why it's important, why it, why it matters to this particular story. Of course, it means I write thousands of fragments that never end up in the book. Right? You have to be a brutal editor um, and I'm a very spare writer, but I always have thought that our ideas are watching us and they send these little scouts out to see how we're going to treat them. If we, you know, beat them to death with how stupid they are and who do they think they are and why would you ever write this, then they're not going to send anymore. <laughs> but if we welcome them and put them on the page, then our ideas are like, okay, this is a safe place to be. Let's center some more. Let's center some more. Let's center some more. I love that idea. And I, I hope that the writers in the audience, if you haven't heard Sarah speak about that before, that you're like madly taking notes because I will need you to send me your notes. Coco, of course, was taken from you, Sarah, and you did go on to write that epilogue. Do you want to just talk a little bit about uh, about that and about where that is now, perhaps, with, with you and with Coco? Um, yes. Yeah, so uh, we had been told when we first took Coco that we would get to adopt her. That was, it was almost a sure thing, which was important to me because we went into the foster care system with the hope to adopt. We wanted to be a forever home for a child. And so we were kind of strategic about which child we said yes to, because we wanted to say yes to one that we would possibly get to keep. It eventually became clear that that wasn't going to happen, despite uh, a lot of warning signs of, about what Evelyn was able to do. But the reunification standard in Idaho is minimal parenting ability. That's it, which is one step above do no harm, because what's most important in Idaho is protecting the constitutional rights of biological parents to, to parent their biological children. That's what the foster care system is designed to protect. What's strange about that is when Coco was in our care, Evelyn had all of these supports. She had us as childcare. She had social worker, she had drug counselors, she had job counselors, she had advocates, she had access to mental health, she had access to help with housing, you know, she just had all of these supports. When Constance is reunified, all those supports disappear. So Evelyn is all of a sudden on her own, which means Coco is on her own. And in the United States, we do not have a pro-family, pro-child um, social system. We have a, we don't have that. We don't have a safety net. We have nothing. It became clear that she was going to go back. And again, you know, you asked me to describe when I first saw Evelyn. Think about this idea that Eric and I are asked to bring Coco to a meeting spot and to hand her over to Evelyn. And no social workers come. 
were given no support for that meeting. Um, so Eric and I both have a background and we both went to divinity school. So we kind of created this ritual. You know, we were being asked to hand our child over to another person and we wanted to honor that as a sacred transition that was going to shatter our lives and possibly um, shatter Coco's, although we, we tried to remain hopeful. So that was the most intense, horrible, terrible um, moment of, of my life. You know, it's not just that you're asked to love these child like they're your own, you know, but then you're asked to hand them to someone who may or may not keep them safe. And there's nothing that you can do about that. So Evelyn and I had developed a really good relationship by that point, and we stayed in contact for quite some time. Um, she asked me to come and babysit sometimes. I went to Coco's first birthday party, um, but then at some point she disappeared. Evelyn stopped responding to my texts, stopped answering my calls, and no one knew where they were. So the epilogue is about that, about trying to track them down, about what happens when Coco ends up coming back into foster care. Um, she comes back in another state, and I'm not allowed to talk about that or, or talk about that very much. And she's given to a stranger family, a family that she doesn't know. Even though Eric and I drive to go get her, they refuse to place her back with us. So that is where we are now. She's with that family. You know, one of the things about this book is I wrote it while it was happening. It's it's very fresh. Someone's asked, why didn't you wait 10 years to write it? And I was like, oh, that's an option. You know, I had to write it to live basically, but we do get to see her every week. Now we Zoom on Thursday morning. So actually in a few hours, I will Zoom with her and we laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh and play games. We've sent her toys. So we have the same toys and we can play with them at the same time. And it's just this beautiful kind of love fest, joy fest. And then the screen goes dark and, and she's gone. If you could change anything immediately tomorrow about the foster care system in, in the US, and I know that there would be similarities here, what is it that you would change immediately? What have you learned through this process? I mean, this isn't a policy book, so there's people that are way better at it than, than I am, but I would change that, that the supports disappear once reunification happens. I would see reunification as the beginning not the end, not the only goal, that um, keeping families safe in the long term needs to change. I would end racism. <laughs> I would end poverty. You know, By the time a child gets into foster care, so many systems have, have failed. You know, We have to start way, way upriver um, to try to make a difference. I also think there's lots to learn from open adoption and from the natural world about what an expanded sense of family looks like. You know, Foster parents are asked to have a understanding of family way outside biology, but within the foster system, it's biology that's championed. And really the foster system exists because biology guarantees nothing, it doesn't guarantee care. Now, what, what would it look like to, to treat family differently and to have a, an expansive sense of family that might continue after reunification? Kirsten has asked, you wrote a book called Breaking Out With God, and I wondered what writing this book taught you about faith and how it shapes you and your writing? Uh, you know, um, I, this morning when I was showering or the middle of the night when I was showering, going, please wake me up, water, wake me up. Um, I was thinking about this idea. Um, this goes back to Gordon Kaufman again. He used to say that the God in Genesis is a poet and a painter um, who uses words to bring worlds into being. And Gordon would say that doesn't tell us very much about God, but it tells us what those writers thought about artists. They knew their work was world-making. This morning I was thinking, you know what though? Um, all this let there be, all this use of language to bring a world back. I feel like God was practicing because ultimately God is a parent who loses God's child. Mm -hmm. Maybe God wanted to be able to use stories to bring their child back. So I think for me, what, what this taught me is that about longing, about helplessness, and that about love, that love and family are, are a practice. They're something we do for one another. If you look at across religions, the only thing they really share is that idea that love is what matters and that we're called to take care of the stranger. Um, so for me, you know, to be on this planet with one another, that's the question. Will we take care? Will we take care of one another? It's the question of the pandemic and it's the question of the foster care system. And my hope is that yes, we will, although evidence is suggesting otherwise. Mm -hmm. Laura says she loved Draw Your Weapons. She can't wait to read Stranger Care. Have you ever had your attention drawn somewhere significant that turned out to be totally fruitless in writing <laughs> terms? Good question, Laura. 
Yes, every single day. (laughs) I also have all these fragments that I like to try to jam into my writing. Like, oh, I'm going to put, I'll just keep on trying to put it in this chapter, in that chapter, in this chapter. So I have a lot of fragments that never fit anywhere. And then I have a lot of complete garbage. But I I don't think you can tell the difference between garbage and a jam until the end. Like, uh, for me, I don't know what I'm writing until the very, 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 very end. So how could I ever revise as I go along? You know, I have to treat everything as viable until it becomes very evident that it's not. But yes, I've written a lot of complete crap. I love that idea that you say, and I I know that you've shared it before. And every time I hear it, it is so affirming when you say that you don't know what you're writing until the end. Can you just give us a little bit more on that? Because I feel like people will take that home with badges, like on their chest to say, (laughs) I don't have to know what I'm writing until the end. And how, how could you, if writing means anything, it's that it, it heals us. It teaches us. It shows us. You know, our, I think I think stories come to us from deep within, and they come from the stars. And that we our challenges to become the writers that our stories need us to be. But to me, writing is this mysterious process that you know. I started out thinking this was going to be a kind of an intellectual book about how the natural world shows us a different model of kinship, and I was pissed. You know, I wanted to like prove. Um, adoption was just as real of a family or foster care was just as real as a family. But as I I wrote it, it, all that left, that's not what this was at all. It became a love story. It became this deep emotional love story. And I couldn't know that until I reached the end of it. And same with Draw Your Weapon. I didn't quite know what it was. And for me, being in the mystery is really interesting. I think when people try to shut down and limit their own projects uh, before they're finished, we miss all these other possibilities for ways of telling a story. Um, For me, language is magic. Creativity is magic. Our minds are magic. Our bodies are magic. So we need to make room for that magic to happen. Otherwise, we're going to tell something that's dead. If If you know what it is already, it's dead. Um, the only way for, for it to remain alive and animate is for it to remain mysterious um, and for it to teach you. And I think that that's that same idea that admitting you might be wrong. How do you carry that as a writer? That's to me, admitting you might be wrong and living in mystery are, are synonymous. Writers who are in the audience, you can see why some of us are addicted to Word Cave. You get this like all day during the Word Cave. Anyway, we haven't got much time. Alice has asked a wonderful question. Sarah, she says, are you worried about the impact of motherhood on your ability to find time to write? Well, um, right this second, yes. Go, tell uh, it, tell it. Uh, because um, Eric and I actually adopted a baby boy who was one month old yesterday, um, and it's an open adoption. His birth mother is absolutely extraordinary, and it's been this really beautiful experience, and I have not written one single word. I've written some <laughs> texts to myself with ideas, but like I am so sleep deprived um, and so filled with joy about that sleep deprivation. What a gift it is to be tired from loving a baby than from grieving a baby, you know, to be able to hold joy and grief alongside one another is, is um, what it means to be human, I guess. But no, I, I think that um, in my experience with Coco, being her caretaker, being her foster mother made me a better writer. I don't mean that parents are better writers. I mean that the way that shattering made me pay closer attention to the world and closer attention to what language can do and the way it made me need language. There were three things that helped me survive that. One was my activism, you know, remembering that my heartbreak is not the only heartbreak. The other was walking, uh, being outside in the natural world, The third was writing and of course, community. So I'll say four community being, I have a great group of friends, but writing was essential for my survival. So I think my hope is that mothering will continue to make me a better writer. I know. And I'm sure that people whose faces are not on the screen like mine is uh, just had their quiet little moment then to weep. Cause I know when you sent me um, the email to tell me that news that I just kind of ran around laughing and weeping at the same time. There's a question that I think I know the answer to, but I'll, I'll let you answer it. It's from Rebecca who says that she's autistic and she's wondering if there'll be an audio book in the future because she feels very connected to this book. She's unable to focus on physical books long, long enough to complete the reading. There's an audio book and it's, I read it. So you get to hear my voice reading it and I actually cry in it. <laughs> um, so yes, I hope that you will listen to the audio book. It's available now, I think. Can you just tell us a little bit, like, what was that experience like reading it back? I can't listen to someone else reading my book. So what was it like to read yours daily when it was this kind of material? 
I loved it. I asked to be able to do it. I love to be able to touch. It feels like touching all the words again before it goes out in the world to read it out loud that way. And I love the producer. I get to work with a woman named Sarah Jaffe who's in New York City and um, she's amazing. But it was very intense. I, I had, I think I shared on Instagram a pile of tissues. I had like huge stack of tissues. So I just, I cried. It was a um, very emotional experience for me. And the producers cried and Sarah cried and it was um, really intimate. It's so intimate to be in a tiny room reading out loud. And we were obviously not together because of the pandemic, but I, I loved it, but it was also exhausting. Sarah Sandil, it's such an extraordinary honour to speak to you tonight, to hear you talk about this book, which um, I know some of the people here haven't even read yet and uh, will be so excited to read now, but also to hear you just share with such frankness and honesty about your creative work and your activism and, and all the ways in which you make the world, yourself, a better place through your creativity. Thank you so much for speaking with us tonight. It's such an honour and I would urge the writers here, um, not only to read Sarah's book, Stranger Care, but also to check out what it's like to be in the word cave with her because it has honestly changed my practice and changed my life and I'm a much better human for having done that. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Kate. I'm a much better human for knowing you. You really do light up whatever room you're part of and it's such a gift. I, I think this is one of the most amazing things about writing is knowing that, you know, Coco is held in hearts around the world, including yours, and you're held in my heart. And it's, um, I really wrote this book so that I would get to come back to Australia. So the <laughs> pandemic has really messed with my plans. <laughs> so hopefully I'll get to come back because- Write um, a new book to come back to us. Please. Yes. Um, I'm in love with so many people there and just grateful for this time together. Thank you so much. You can stream previous episodes of The Readings Podcast on our website, where you'll also find all kinds of bookish recommendations and plenty of great books, music, film, and TV. You can also sign up to e-news or to receive our free monthly print newsletter, The Readings Monthly. Production for this podcast was by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. All of our podcasts are recorded and produced on the lands of the Kulin Nation. We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of this land, and that sovereignty was never ceded.